Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show, where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the Virtual Voyage, we were in Israel, and we headed to the Israel Museum, just a few miles away where so many fascinating archaeological discoveries are housed. And on our way, remember that we stopped and we got to enjoy some Israeli pizza and hamburgers. Do you remember what we learned about the kosher rules as well? Yeah, no dairy product and no meat product can be eaten together. Actually, a Jew has to wait six hours in between enjoying some ice cream and then having meat. So that means that pepperoni pizza is definitely not a thing in Israel. And cheeseburgers definitely don't exist. We'll wait and get some when we get back to the States. We saw that these restrictions are so strictly applied that even bringing a piece of meat into a pizza joint would be a cause for those people eating in the restaurant that are Jews to actually yell at you to get out because you could cause them to break kosher. We talked about an exception. Do you remember the exception? It had to do with the tray? Yeah. If, if someone were to put their food on a tray and then eat it, well, then they could have a slice of pizza uh, around a table where other people are enjoying hamburgers. I, I've seen this firsthand with our Jewish friends who have done this. It's a, a curious little exception right there. One thing I'm just reminded of that I didn't tell you about last time was uh, McDonald's. They have those here in Israel. And because of kosher restrictions, I think the meat is a lot better than back in the United States. In the United States, McDonald's can get a bad rap, right? But honestly, it has a great taste here in Israel. And one thing that a lot of people love at McDonald's, except for me, I'm lactose intolerant, well, it, it's McDonald's ice cream, right? I mean, come on. So how in the world are McDonald's in Israel supposed to have these amazing ice cream uh, creations that they make if McDonald's also has a lot of meat throughout the restaurant? Well, the answer lies in a special ice cream booth of sorts that McDonald's in Israel will have. So this booth is like kind of facing the street. It allows for a server to enter into it and make whatever you want uh, while those wanting the ice cream are standing outside in the street. And then the server can actually hand them their ice cream through a window that opens up to said street. And so the ice cream never has to come into the store and everyone can be happily served. So it's a pretty little, uh, little nifty idea to get around the, the kosher restriction there, if you ask me. So back to the Israel Museum, once we arrived there, we saw how huge it was. I mean, there is so much there that you could honestly, and you might need it, you, you could use and need several days to walk through it and read all of the signs and see everything. The signs are a good thing. You probably noticed those as we, we see every artifact, there is an accompanying sign in three languages that describes what we're seeing and maybe how it was found and, and, and some of the history. So here's a question for you, all of you virtual voyagers. What three languages are on the signs? Yep, I, I see some of you have been very carefully listening to your tour guide here. The three languages found on a lot of signs in Israel are going to be Hebrew, Arabic, and English. And we learned about that a little bit on one of our very first tours, right? So anyways, back to the Israel Museum. It is super large, and I recommend that you do come back and you take a look around on your own because... Uh, even though we haven't been to a lot of the sites that the artifacts are found at, I think you'll start to recognize some of the names of where things were found. And actually, I, I believe there are several artifacts throughout the museum from Tel Shiloh. And you've been there, you know what that is. So that's pretty cool when you see an artifact from Tel Shiloh, maybe you stood exactly where the artifact was found. 
So once we start to visit a lot more of the sites in Israel, you'll begin recognizing a lot more of the names. That may sound foreign now, but, but you'll figure it out, I promise. We also stop by a 1 to 50 scale model of Jerusalem during the Second Temple period. It's pretty, pretty big, to be perfectly honest, and I, I, I like that model because it's accurate, but it really is large. So sometimes with these small models, you can't really pick out much beyond the walls of Jerusalem and maybe the Temple Mount. But with this one, we could see each little house, maybe the shops, and we can get a good idea of the Temple Mount and the Temple structure itself. Well, now let's head back to where we were when we had to abruptly leave off last time here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Right now, we're standing outside in the heat of Israel, but we're getting a little wet, and it's not because it's raining. If it were raining, um, well, that, that would be a cause for the entire Israeli media to show up, honestly, because it never rains. I don't see them here. So there has to be another cause for, for these droplets coming down on us. And it's actually from the shrine of the book over here to the right that we're standing outside of. And that's that white dome structure. It rises into a bit, a bit of a point at the top. And that represents the jars of source that the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in. We'll talk about that in just a second. But anyways, the water that we're feeling is, is just splashing down on us because there's a fountain of water that hits the top of the dome. And then the water droplets spray off. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls are actually right inside there. So we're going to head in there now. So as we're walking up the ramp to go into the Shrine of the Book, note the signs. They want us to be quiet, just out of reverence, right, for what we're about to see. Don't have any food or drink. No spills. They, they don't want any of that. They don't even want to take the risk. And most importantly, no pictures. Um, we'll talk more about how you can see the Dead Sea Scrolls later, because right now I know that you, you might want to get a picture of them to have to remember, but there are ways that you can actually see the Dead Sea Scrolls later and make sure that we don't even take the chance of damaging the scrolls. So as we walk in, I know everyone is anticipating the scrolls themselves, but notice the pottery that's displayed on both sides. This is pottery from Qumran, and that's the area near the Dead Sea where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And we'll actually head up to Qumran soon, but just look around to the right, the left, see what they, what they found a little bit, you know, it's kind of cool. It's interesting to note that the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, once, once they were found in Qumran, there was a bit of an obsession with the place, Qumran. So people began excavating it like crazy, and they found quite a lot. I mean, there were so many scrolls, and they found this pottery that we're seeing, and, and that meant that people really had lived there and inhabited that. And then we would be tempted to ask, and we should ask, well, what kind of people live there? And uh, let's see if you can guess what kind of people live there based on this detail. They found mikvahs there. Remember, a mikvah is a Jewish ritual purifying bath, so that means that Jews live there. So when you consider Christianity today, let's make a modern day parallel. Christianity today has many different denominations, right? The same goes with Judaism. There are many different sects of Judaism. And so some people have said that the Essenes lived there at Qumran, the Essenes being a sect of Judaism. And others have said it was maybe a more Sadducean oriented place. Maybe another sect of Judaism lived there. And it's okay if you don't understand those terms now, because we're going to get to them later. But whatever it might be, I, uh, well, I personally would disagree with some people who have said that no Jews live there. I think the evidence definitely points to Qumran being a place where the Jewish religion was practiced and, and where it was kept, no matter what sect of Judaism happened to be there. Anyways, that's enough on Qumran itself for now. You've seen some pottery. We'll head there soon enough and learn all about that place. So back to the shrine of the book where we're standing, we're about to go up the stairs and into the middle of the dome where the scrolls are kept. But before we do, you need to have some context, some understanding of the scrolls. 
and how they were found. I mean, why can't we just run in and look at them and see how cool it is? You might be asking me that question, and, and the answer is the same one my Latin professor gives me quite frequently. Context determines everything. If we don't have the context necessary to understand the Dead Sea Scrolls and the significance of their discovery, at the most, seeing these scrolls will be interesting. We've probably all heard of them, so that's cool, but it won't really have that impact because we won't know why it's so fascinating and just how amazing the opportunity is to see these scrolls. So let's backtrack a little bit to 1947. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered by shepherds near the Dead Sea in that year, and there are two differing stories surrounding the discovery of the scrolls that we're about to see. So the first story goes like this. One of the shepherd's sheep climbed up on a cliff in the area of Qumran. Yeah, there are a lot of cliffs you'll see, so that would have been possible. And the sheep ended up inside a random cave, and then the shepherd went in to rescue the sheep and discovered these old jars and found the scrolls inside. The second one is that a shepherd was bored while watching his sheep. Okay, you think about it, how exciting can it really be to watch sheep run around in the desert? Eh. So the story goes that this shepherd started throwing objects, some, some rocks, I guess you could say, into a cave, and all of a sudden he heard the rock shatter something. So he goes into the cave to find what was cracked, and then the story goes that he found the jug that contained the Dead Sea Scrolls. So I have a friend who's quite knowledgeable about the Dead Sea Scrolls. I, I hope that he even may join us uh, for our time in Qumran, or at some point to discuss more with you. But he's told me that he finds the first story is more plausible, a sheep getting lost in a cave, and the shepherd needing to find the sheep. I, that makes sense. Well, whatever the story be, here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, the shepherd took the scrolls that he had found to an antiquities dealer in Jerusalem. He had no idea what he had his hands on. We actually believe that he sold it just for a few dollars. And we can't believe that. I mean, selling the Dead Sea Scrolls for a few dollars, but that's knowing what we now know about them. If we were in his position, we wouldn't have known that in our hands we held the oldest, like literally the oldest biblical manuscripts, manuscripts around. So the antiquities dealer then took those scrolls and he showed them to this professor in Jerusalem who was a foremost biblical scholar. And one thing my friend, who has quite a stake in the project to digitize the Dead Sea Scrolls, we'll discuss that later. Uh, anyways, this friend likes to mention that Jerusalem at this time was separated between the Arabs and the Jews. As he calls them, the Brits have put up this wall to prevent any fighting. So the story goes that the antiquities dealer actually showed it to this professor who knew a lot about such things through the wall. Well, this professor, yeah, he, he knew he'd seen something really cool. So he goes to David Ben-Gurion. Maybe you've heard the name. David Ben-Gurion was the first prime minister of Israel. He was in office at the time. So anyways, this professor goes to Ben-Gurion and guess what he says? Hey, I need $40,000 to buy three of these seven scrolls. $40,000. Now, the Israeli government is in the middle of a war because it's 1947, so Israel's fighting for its independence. All the same, Ben-Gurion gave the professor the money, and the professor bought the scrolls. That professor, I think it's interesting, he was reading the scrolls on the evening of November 29, 1947, which is when the United Nations voted to partition the land of Israel into two sides, a side for Israel and a side for the Arabs. Quick side story, Israel agreed to that, the Arabs didn't. The Arabs then essentially launched a war against Israel. So I think that's all I'll say there for now. But that's interesting that he was just reading those scrolls and digging into them when all of this is unfolding. The Dead Sea Scrolls really 
were found in that time period when so much of Israel was coming back to life, which is an interesting, you know, piece of context to keep in mind. So later, the other four scrolls, they were sold to the Archbishop of Syria. So he had them, and then he didn't want them. So they were actually sold through an ad in the Wall Street Journal. So it's funny because the Archbishop tried to get them into an academic institution. He said, hey, take these scrolls, they're great, look at them, so cool. Uh, he was unsuccessful, though. So there's this Yadin family of New York, and they put up the money to buy the scrolls uh, when they saw that, that ad in the Wall Street Journal, and they actually created a museum for the scrolls. And that museum is the one that we're in right now. So a lot of the scrolls that we're about to see aren't in great condition. We have parts that are missing. Um, I will note the Isaiah scroll is the most complete of all the scrolls. Interesting little fact, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, was most likely written by two Isaiahs. We, we think this because the first 40 chapters of Isaiah were probably written in the lifetime of the first Isaiah, maybe the, the quote-unquote real Isaiah, the one that you maybe think of first, right? And then the last 16 books of Isaiah were written by who we might call, uh, let's call him second Isaiah, okay? First and second Isaiah, there we go. So he, second Isaiah, was probably in Babylon, and we think that because he mentions some events that are much later than those that the first 40 chapters talks about. He mentions Cyrus. He, uh, Cyrus was the Persian king who conquered the Babylonians in 530, 539, 539 BC. So Cyrus was the, uh, was the person who actually allowed people to return to their homelands. So Cyrus was the one who really allowed the Jews to return to Israel after that exile. And that was the catalyst for the building of the Second Temple. Then, of course, we have another exile. We've talked about that for the past few episodes on the virtual voyage, where the Second Temple was destroyed, and then the Jews really didn't ever make it back into Israel until after the Holocaust. Okay, so all of that goes to say that there are multiple scrolls that we are about to get to see. So follow me on in here. Let's go ahead and walk on in now. So on this top level that we're on, you see it's a circle, so you can walk around the circular platform and see the various scrolls that are set out in these very uh, careful conditions, right? You'll notice a lot of the Hebrew letters have faded over time. So it's hard for even a native Hebrew speaker, or maybe, let's say, you, you know, a rabbi who, who knows this language so well, it's hard for them even to read. So as you walk around, some of the stations will have these signs in front, and they'll translate part of the scrolls for you. I'm going to give you a little secret, though, here. If you want to go and get great photos of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and also, get this, you can hover over individual verses of the scroll in Hebrew and then see the English translation. All you need to do later is go on your web browser and search digital, digital Dead Sea Scrolls, digital Dead Sea Scrolls, and you'll be able to do just that. One of my friends in Israel, he actually helped get this project to digitize the Dead Sea Scrolls off the ground. And I've been so pleased with the result. It is so fantastic that now we can look at every single scroll and hover over it and see the intricacies of it. Uh, so that actually allows literally anyone to see the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is fantastic because while it's awesome and optimal to be standing here inside of the shrine of the book like we are right now, not everyone gets the chance. So that is the solution. So definitely check out Digital Dead Sea Scrolls and I think you'll find it pretty awesome. So follow me around this platform here. We already talked about the Isaiah scroll. And there it is. Right there, yep. And over here we then have the war scroll. Or the war of the sons of light against the sons of darkness. 
Do you remember anything about that scroll? That's the scroll that inspired the white dome that faces the black wall that's right outside of here, right? We're inside the white dome right now. And remember, we stood behind, if we look directly behind us, we saw that black wall. That's the scroll that inspired all of that. There's also the commentary on Habakkuk's scroll over to our right. And this scroll uh, actually interprets Habakkuk's first two chapters. So one of the scrolls that is pretty damaged in some places, come over here, it's right in front of us here. It's pretty damaged, it's the temple scroll. So this scroll has some new versions of laws that were presented in the last book of the Torah, which is Deuteronomy. So this actually talks about how God instructed Moses to create and operate the temple. Interesting little read there. All right, let's continue around the circle to the last scroll on display right now, which is the community scroll. So this is the community scroll, and this scroll actually details how a certain sect of Judaism is to act. Remember, we talked about like sects like the Essenes, right, who we suppose might have lived in Qumran. So the community scroll detailed how that certain sect would have had to have lived. Well, now that we've completed the loop up here on the top level, here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, and then you, my fellow virtual voyager, have seen the Dead Sea Scrolls before your very eyes. And you've also learned about their fascinating story. Really, truly fascinating. I want to invite you, come on, let's head down the winding stairs to an area here below us. We're going to see the oldest manuscript of the Hebrew Bible. Oldest manuscript, yep. The Aleppo Codex. Now, the Aleppo Codex was written in the 900s AD uh, in a place called Tiberias. Tiberias is a city in Israel up in the north on the Sea of Galilee. We'll go there at some point. My family and I actually sometimes stay in Tiberias if we want to go and visit the north and not make a three-hour drive every single morning. We'll stay up there at a hostel in Tiberias. It's quite nice. Right on the sea. Cool little place. But anyway, so the Aleppo Codex was written in Tiberias, but then it ended up spending most of its life in Aleppo, Syria at a synagogue there. And for this community in Aleppo, it was one of their most sacred possessions. I mean, it was regarded as, as if the, it had magical powers. It was said that women who looked at the Aleppo Codex could become pregnant. There was also a fear, though, on the other hand, among a, the community at Aleppo, that if this scroll, well, maybe, I should say, if this codex were ever lost, the community would be destroyed by a plague, and the person who stole it would be cursed. So now, as we come up close to it here, you'll notice that it seems to be missing a great many pages up at the beginning where the Torah should be. And that's because we believe that the pages were lost during anti-Jewish riots in Aleppo during the late 1940s. 1947, I think. Maybe. I don't, don't quite quote me on that. Late 1940s. So supposedly the pages were burned in the fire. And then when the Codex reappeared in Israel in 1958, so much was found to be missing. So a lot of people then began to think that some people had just taken part of the Codex into their own hands, and so those missing pages are now just in private hands, not actually destroyed. And maybe that actually makes some sense, considering that people thought the Codex had magical power, so having a piece of it might be some extra good luck. It's also interesting because the Codex actually has no real evidence of being in a fire. You see these black marks here on the pages? Well, that's from fungus, not fire. So really, in the end, who knows what's the story there? Well, right now, we see it's opened up to a page from the Psalms, and I always like seeing the intricacy of the Hebrew lettering done here. It's quite, quite nice. Well, let's head on up the stairs and exit the shrine of the book. Wow, what a day. We finished our tour of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Israel Museum, and we learned so much about how they were found and the history behind them. 
Like I said, you can't simply run into the shrine of the book, walk around for 15 minutes, and then exit. So sometimes to avoid that, it means that we have to take the extra time uh, to listen to your tour guide, to listen to me for just a few more minutes. And honestly, that's what makes our time here worth it. When we're able to come away with knowledge combined with the actual visit where we got to see the site or got to see the artifact with our own eyes, it's a great day. You actually saw the Dead Sea Scrolls before your very eyes, which is something uh, most people can say. Now you know about the Aleppo Codex and some of the mysteries surrounding it. There are some great documentaries and also books out there on the Aleppo Codex, and one of these days I want to read some or watch some of the documentaries, because goodness, who doesn't want a good mystery book sourced in some amount of reality? Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue to tour the land of Israel, learning about history, culture, and touring some of the best sites the world has to offer along the way. See you next time on The Virtual Voyage. <laughs>